welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Welcome back, Failed Utopians. This is Anna, your mean and ugly podcast host. I hope you're all caught up on the first four episodes. Jonestown Parts 1 and 2 were pretty heavy, so today's episode offers an antidote with the happiest place on Earth. Yeah, Disney World. Is it really the happiest place on Earth? No idea. Never been there. Aside from Baby Yoda, I don't care that much about Disney, and I'm sure I just earned myself a bunch of hate mail for saying that. I know a lot of people are really into Disney, but you know what I do like about Disney? It's not a cult. Yeah, not a cult. That goes in the plus column. Stay glued to your speakers to find out just what Walt Disney has to do with Utopia. And if you're worried this is going to be too cheerful, don't be. I'll find a way to make it creepy and disturbing, just how you guys like it. Just two quick pieces of housekeeping before we start. In case you missed it last week, there was a short bonus episode released as a follow-up to the Jonestown episodes. And in other news, the Failed Utopia merchandise shop is now open. Tees, hoodies, mugs, masks, and more, it's all there at failedutopia.com slash shop. While Disney may be best known for charming musical adaptations of gruesome old-timey fairy tales, Disney also does a bunch of other stuff. In addition to the animation studio that made the name Walt Disney famous, the company has grown to encompass innumerable animated and live-action movies and television shows. And they've acquired other networks and franchises, including 20th Century Fox, FX, National Geographic, ESPN, Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and a ton more. They also operate theme parks, water parks, and resorts all over the world. Today, the Walt Disney Company is a global behemoth that seems poised to continue growing. So how did it all start? Walter Elias Disney was born in Chicago in 1901. He was a gifted artist from the beginning, and in 1923, Walt co-founded Walt Disney Productions with his brother, Roy, and another partner. Walt was an innovative animator, and with his creation of the beloved character Mickey Mouse in the late 20s, paved the way to fame and success which would include over 20 Academy Awards given to Walt in his lifetime. In 1955, the Disneyland theme park opened on the site of a former orange grove in Anaheim, California, with the substantial price tag of $17 million. The park overcame a rough opening and some subsequent ups and downs to become the iconic family vacation destination we know it as today. 
A few years after Disneyland's launch, the Disney Brothers began planning a new theme park near Orlando, Florida, which would feature the experimental prototype Community of Tomorrow, or Epcot. For those just learning about Disney World for the first time like I am, Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando actually consists of four theme parks, the first of which was the Magic Kingdom, and the second was Epcot. In his 2001 book, Married to the Mouse, Richard E. Fogelthong analyzes Disney World from the perspective of Walt Disney's desire to remove barriers to innovation, which he identified as traditional property rights, zoning and building codes, and elected politicians. Disney preferred to replace these inefficiencies with a centralized, benign but paternalistic leadership. In the book's preface, Fogelsong poses the question, Is the Disneyland model of centralized land ownership and private government best, or is the status quo of democracy and capitalism a better arrangement? See what you think after learning about Walt Disney's utopia. Before we really dig in, I just have to read you one more paragraph from this book. Taken more broadly, it struck me as very prescient at the time of this recording shortly after the American election in 2020. Fogelsong writes, In writing this account, I have tried to be fair. Yet fairness does not mean, as a journalist once told me, going straight down the middle and not offending anyone. It does not mean offering equal measures of praise and criticism to all concerned. Rather, it means being fair to the story, fair to the facts, so that some persons get knocked more than others. For those painted in unflattering tones, I have tried to offer your perspective too, subject to limits of space and evidence, so readers can judge for themselves. I have also tried to be mindful that while people make history, they do not always do so just as they please. Wow, think about that later when you open your favorite news app. After Disneyland's eventual success in California, Disney began shopping around an idea for another much larger theme park and was wooed by city governments all over the world. After an unfortunate misstep in St. Louis, when Walt Disney's pride was wounded by a slightly offensive remark by a city official, Orlando, Florida became the new home for the proposed Walt Disney World Resort in 1963. Central Florida's culture and economy would be vastly transformed by the massive economic boom and growing pains created by Disney World's opening. It's not uncommon for city governments to go to great lengths to woo commerce giants and other entrepreneurs to their cities for the purpose of economic development. This is frequently carried out through the offering of tax breaks with the hope that the ensuing economic benefits from added jobs will more than make up the difference to the local economy. Think back a few years to when Amazon got in a little tiff with New York City. What made the partnership between Disney and Orlando so remarkable was that, in trying to attract Disney's interest, Orlando ended up offering the improbable perk of allowing Disney to form its own private government, 
regulating land use exempt from Florida's building and zoning regulations, designing and building their own infrastructure, and even setting up their own police and emergency services. Ultimately, they never set up an official police force, instead choosing to rely on hundreds of private security guards. These so-called security hosts make traffic stops with flashing red lights, issue citations, conduct surveillance and investigations, and wear uniforms that look like police uniforms. In a court case, security hosts were asked to explain their uniforms, and the employees asserted that the uniforms were costumes, as though they were just like any other Disney cast member dressed up as the Beast or Snow White. While the private security force keeps law enforcement from having to deal with small infractions like speeding or shoplifting, there have been documented instances when 911 calls for serious crimes at Disney, which go first to Disney employees, were not appropriately passed on to official law enforcement. Disney prefers to downplay security and law enforcement operations as much as possible, with the justification that they don't want to create uncomfortable guest experiences. Reportedly, they don't bother to enforce DUI laws for this reason. Wouldn't want a DUI ruining anyone's vacation. In their deal with Florida, Disney was even authorized to build its own airport and nuclear facility. It never did build either the airport or the nuclear plant, but they still retain authorization to do so should they choose. In his book, Richard Fogelsong cleverly refers to this unique arrangement Disney has as a Vatican with mouse ears. Ostensibly, Disney gained these benefits for the purpose of building an experimental model city of the future for 20,000 people, Epcot. Disney executives justified their need for complete flexibility and autonomy by claiming that in order to innovate for the future, the company would always be, quote, in a state of becoming. This sounds like some pretentious corporate doublespeak from today, but it worked. They got what they wanted, even though this residential city of the future vision of Epcot never came to pass. After the 1963 decision to proceed with development in Orlando, The Walt Disney Company worked on planning and land acquisition in secret until the fall of 1965 when they made their plans public. In addition to Walt Disney's prodigious creative talent, he was reportedly also genuinely interested in urban planning. Walt Disney was obsessed with the idea of creating a new kind of community from scratch that solved what he perceived to be the problems of urban life. That was his utopian idea, as the 1950s gave way to the social changes and upheaval seen in many urban centers of America through the 1960s. The design of the 300-acre Epcot community was inspired in large part by the 1964 World's Fair held in New York. In fact, Epcot is sort of like a year-round World's Fair. The idea of Epcot, or Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, was a beautiful community designed for the work and play of 20,000 residents. 
residents wouldn't own land and they wouldn't vote, which somehow was peddled as an idea that would increase government responsiveness. I couldn't find a great explanation of this theory, but it seemed to have something to do with the gridlock that can ensue when a city's residents can obstruct any idea they don't like, or when local government just ignores the needs of the people. Urban planning played a big role in the Epcot concept, and architecture itself can be a powerful motif in some utopian thinking. In this case, Epcot was designed on a radial map, like a wheel with spokes, with a dense urban business center surrounded by rings of apartments. On the ring outside of that would be a green belt and recreational areas. And lastly, low-density single-family housing would make up the outer rings, what I consider suburbs. One of the more outlandish features of Epcot was a transparent dome enclosing the inner rings in climate-controlled comfort. High-speed electric rail would connect all the rings on this radial map. Schools, playgrounds, churches, and more would all be connected by walking paths, trains, monorail, and a continuously running conveyor belt system carrying electric tram cars, modeled after a system at Disneyland and dubbed the Wedway People Mover. The Wed in Wedway stood for Walter Elias Disney, his initials, by the way. A lower level would be reserved for trucks and delivery vehicles with integrated access to service elevators. The next level up would be for cars only, with no stoplights for those passing through and plenty of parking lots off to the sides. And the ground level would be reserved for pedestrians. No traffic, while electric monorail trains would whiz overhead. The Epcot community was also to be connected by rail to the nearby amusement park and an industrial park, where many of the city's residents would work. This was all in the interest of eliminating what Disney considered to be the problems of current urban living, including traffic congestion and the tacky, chaotic mishmash of shops, restaurants, and motels that surrounded Disneyland in Anaheim, much to Walt's chagrin. He resolved to avoid the problem this time around by purchasing a large swath of land surrounding Disney's property in Florida so that any development surrounding his theme park could be tightly controlled and kept organized and tidy. Epcot was also billed as a testing and proving ground for all of America's newest ideas and technology for urban planning and living. The community would never be considered complete and static, Instead, it would be constantly evolving, what was referenced earlier as in a constant state of becoming. As Walt Disney himself put it, Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. Very utopian. If you really want to get a sense of Walt Disney's magical thinking about his Epcot venture, Follow the link in the show notes to watch his 1966 Epcot promotional video. It's really cool. It uses maps and models to show Walt's visionary concepts for Epcot and features a bunch of amazing retro footage of Disneyland. 
You can also see right through the antiquated film how charming and charismatic Walt himself was. I actually found myself being convinced of the genius of Epcot as I watched it. Sadly, this would be the last on-camera appearance by Walt before his death from lung cancer just a couple of months later. He didn't live to see his dream of Disney World and Epcot come to fruition. I wonder what Epcot could have become if Walt had lived to oversee it. Of course, there's always the possibility that it would have broken his heart to see that his imagineered utopia didn't turn out the way he planned. After Walt's death, his brother Roy and the rest of Disney were somewhat ill-prepared to proceed with Walt's Epcot dream. It was Walt's passion, and most of the vision was only in his head. But they had to proceed with it somehow. That's how they'd gotten their sweetheart deal with Florida in the first place. They decided to carry on by creating their Disneyland-style Magic Kingdom theme park and then go on with Epcot, based on the as-yet-unseen promotional video. In the wake of Walt's death, his brother Roy and the Disney company managed to convince stakeholders that the project was still on and wouldn't suffer from the loss of its visionary and construction commenced. Even if Florida state officials were naive to take Disney at their word that they would fulfill their lofty promise to create Epcot, the glitz and glamour of Disney, along with the $600 million they planned to invest in Florida to create Disney World, sealed the deal. Work continued apace, and the Magic Kingdom theme park portion of Disney World opened on schedule in 1971, five times larger than the original Disneyland Park in California. But by the 1980s, it was clear that Epcot wasn't turning out to be the city of the future that had been promised in that starry-eyed utopian film from 1966. It was more of an exhibition of technology and culture from around the world and corporate exhibits showcasing industrial breakthroughs. That big, weird-looking white ball thing in every picture of Epcot is called Spaceship Earth, and apparently there's some kind of time-travel-themed ride inside it. Yeah, I had to look that up. Anyway, there was ultimately no residential component to Epcot. This broke the deal that the Disney company had made with Florida, since there was no justification for the private government powers they'd been granted if they had no citizens. But by this time, there was so much momentum behind the juggernaut that was Disney World that they got away with breaking their promise to create the model city of tomorrow scot-free. Despite over-promising and under-delivering and not really offering any explanation, after the opening of Epcot at Disney World in 1982, attendance shot up over 80%, generating millions of dollars in profit. The Disney brand itself only became more successful, growing in popularity and opening resorts and parks all over the world. The Disney ethos of total customer satisfaction, attention to detail, immersive experiences, and a shiny veneer of sparkling wholesome cleanliness has kept their reign going for over 60 years. 
And the kitschy, fabricated main streets of their parks and resorts do sort of evoke the utopian dreams of Walt Disney. So, Walt Disney World, who is this a utopia for? The owners? The guests? The workers? Spoiler alert, it's not the workers. A 2018 survey found that almost three-quarters of the 30,000 employees at Disneyland in Anaheim, California, didn't make enough money to cover their basic expenses each month, and two-thirds were food insecure. One in ten said they'd been homeless within the past two years. And a concierge who had been working at Disneyland for almost 30 years revealed he had lived in his car at times. He worried about not being able to make a car payment and winding up on the street. Meanwhile, Disney profits increased, prices rose, and park revenues for the quarter hit $5.2 billion. When that survey came out, Abigail Disney, granddaughter to Roy Disney, was livid and told LA Magazine that, quote, My grandfather taught me to revere these people that take your tickets, that pour your soda, that scrape the freaking bubble gum off the sidewalks every night so you walk into an immaculate place. Those people are much of the recipe for success. There's no excuse for any employee to be using food stamps. Abigail Disney wrote to then-Disney CEO Bob Iger to advocate for better wages and treatment for employees, but Iger didn't respond. This is not at all unlike the way many large companies and retailers operate, with armies of low-paid workers making poverty wages and trying to bridge the gap with publicly funded programs like food stamps and Medicaid, while the corporation and shareholders hold on to their billions in profits. One of the most famous examples of this arrangement is, of course, Walmart. Its founding family, the Waltons, are worth around $200 billion, thanks to the retail chain's famously low prices and minimum wage workforce. Some of you might remember a few years ago when McDonald's was roundly ridiculed when its suggested budget for its employees leaked. The budget assumed that the worker had a second job, didn't include groceries, gas, clothing, or childcare, and hilariously included health insurance for $20. The broad perception of that hypothetical budget was that McDonald's had inadvertently proven the impossibility of surviving on their wages. When we see a shiny, clean, idealized facade and ignore the invisible labor that makes it possible, it's not a utopia. It's just a fabricated synthetic reality. It reminds me a lot of the Hunger Games book series, especially The Capital City, a shining beacon of affluence and excess atop an underground of armies of hidden workers toiling in the worst imaginable conditions. I don't think that a sanitized version of a society that already exists is a reasonable vision of utopia. In fact, that's what a lot of the cults we talk about on this podcast do when things start to go bad. They just create a facade and hide everything going on behind the scenes that's dark and ugly under the rug. But as far as Disney goes, that facade is what going on vacation is all about. It's fun for a while, and you feel great because you don't have any responsibilities. If you don't bring your kids with you anyway. 
But what happens when you bring everything with you to Utopia, including your work and your family? Can you still have a Utopia with all your everyday cares and worries? Well, that's where the city of Celebration comes in. Celebration is sort of a Disney company town near Disney World. The affluent town of several thousand was planned and developed by the Disney Development Company in the 1990s, and it was a half-hearted nod to Walt Disney's original vision for Epcot, though it appears nothing like the original Epcot plan. At one point in the planning phase of Celebration, Disney officials proposed a section of affordable housing for Disney employees, which they would call, get this, Funky Town. Ultimately, it was decided that a low-income area would be a turnoff to other Celebration residents, and the idea was scrapped. It was a so-called international prototype community that had no place for the lower income among us, including their own employees who worked in Celebration but couldn't afford to live there. Affordable housing would be left to the community outside Disney to sort out. Unsurprisingly, Celebration lacks other forms of diversity as well. Its residents are about 90% white. There's also been some controversy over the poor construction quality of housing there, leading to dilapidation and depreciation and the school. Of course, schools are always controversial. God bless you, anxious, angry parents. The community was master-planned, of course, meaning that there are only a few style of houses, so things are pretty uniform. White picket fences and all that. To me, this place sounds like a suburban McMansion development with very strict HOA rules. I think a lot of people might be uh, creeped out by the synthetic Truman Show quality of this town. What type of person would even want to live in a place like this? Are these the people who move into gated communities and then complain about their neighbor's unsanctioned mailbox or basketball hoop? It turns out quite a few wealthy elites do have homes in celebration where they live out some sort of fantasy, but it's a select few who can afford it, even if they like the vibe. Well, failed utopians, that's it for this episode. Maybe Disney World is not a utopia, but it's a great place to pretend. Or so I'm told. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.